0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com.
2: Hi there, and welcome to A Taste of the Past, a journey through culinary history. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on Heritage Radio Network, and today in the news, we've been reading a lot about, I've been reading a lot about, um, lost foods, heirloom seeds, are they better than hybrid Huge article in the New York Times today about heirloom seeds and, and what all this fuss and should we be bothering with them? Should we be focusing on the hybrid seeds that might be better? Then right next to it was an article about the loss of chestnut trees in America. The, the 1911 blight that killed over four billion chestnut trees. Now of course these were not so much the eating chestnuts as they were prized for their wood. But still, it makes you sit up and take note of things that are that get lost over time, and in fact, that's what we're going to talk about today. America's Vanished Foods, or as our author and guest today, Andrew Beers, likes to say, forgotten foods worth bringing back. Andrew Beers is an author of two novels, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, Gastronomica, Virginia Quarterly Review, the Food History News, just to mention a few, Huffington Post as well. His book that we're talking about today is called Twain's Feast. Searching for America's lost foods in the footsteps of Samuel Clemens. Welcome, Andrew.
3: Hi, Linda. Thanks for having me.
2: This I, I just enjoyed the book so much because it's it, you you do keep a nice light tone and and um, much in the way that Mark Twain. You can almost hear him grousing about uh, foods that he can't get or foods that he's tired of or doesn't <laughs> like. <laughs> I thought that was great. What now? What made you first? Um, embrace Twain and food. Um, were you doing research on Mark Twain, or you just happened to pick up a book? What? How did that come about? Well, I've, I've been a
3: Twain fan from way back, and that's what led me to read um, his book, A Tramp Abroad, which mm-hmm. I think is kind of a you know not not one of the first books that people read when they when they start. Exploring, Twain. I mean, you usually go to Huckleberry Finn, maybe right. Connecticut, Connecticut Yankee, King Arthur's Court, Tom Sawyer, certainly. Um, but uh, you know, it, it, during his lifetime, he was well known as a as a travel writer as well. Um, That's he was right. one of the people that helped to explain to Americans kind of their place in the world and what was beyond their borders. And one of the books that he did this in was A Tramp Abroad, where he was traveling around Europe.
2: Now, was that after Innocence? Was that after that was, in, after Innocence that, Abroad?
3: That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, Innocence Abroad was the best-selling book in his lifetime, and right. then Tramp Abroad was kind of him revisiting the subject 15 years almost 20 years later. Now Um, we have to
2: remind our listeners, this is 18, what, 1879?
3: Yeah, 1878 and nine. That's exactly right. So uh, so I was reading through this book and right at the end, you can tell he's getting very, very homesick. And the way this comes across is he writes a list of all of his favorite American foods, all the things that he wanted the moment he returned home. He said he wanted them all served up at a small private affair all to himself. But uh, in actual fact, he goes on for several pages. I was going to say, this this
2: list took up two pages in your book, so. (laughs) Yeah,
3: exactly, exactly. Exactly. So I, I just found this um, tremendously evocative and exciting from the moment I saw it. I mean, here you have one of America's great authors really brainstorming, kind of almost free associating what are the American foods he thinks of first when he thinks of American food. What, what does he consider the best of his country's cuisine? Um, at a, which is kind of a snap, not only a snapshot of that moment in time, but also says something about his life and his travels. Uh, well, I was going to say,
2: he yeah. was he was tremendously well-traveled in this country as well.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, born and raised in in Missouri, but then traveled up and down the Mississippi River for years as a pilot, went out west to uh Nevada and California working as a miner there. Um, you know, traveled to Hawaii, which was called the Sandwich Islands at the time, and then ended up living in on the East Coast uh for much of his life. So, Midwest, Southwest, East, I mean, he he lived everywhere. He was he was in a remarkably well-traveled and certainly very uh um Remar- remarkably well-traveled and also a great evocative writer that was able to express the, the pleasure that he took in these different places.
2: Right. That's right. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, um, the, I just had Molly O'Neill on talking about One Big Table a few weeks ago, uh-huh. and it was her search for American cuisine, not American food, American cuisine. And, and I, I tend more to the side of that. Yes, there's American food. But, um, and this is something that, that you really bring about. This book is great. It's really um, a, a treatise on, on American foods, those that are lost, those are that maybe we should bring back, as you say, and, and um, some that we've sort of forgotten about. And it really defines it, what you stated. On, I'm just going to read a, a comment that you make in your book. You state that these were the foods that defined American places in the days before cheap railroad transport blurred the culinary lines between places like New York City and Twain's Hannibal Missouri and i think that's really that really sets the tone for the book
3: Well, that's one of the things that struck me very early on when I started kind of exploring this menu, is the fact that that Twain was so exact about the places that he wanted each of these foods to come from. I mean, he he would have things that that were fairly broad, like he would just say green corn on the ear, and sometimes he would talk about, in terms of regional food, like southern-style biscuits. But on many of these foods, he was very, very precise, where he wouldn't just want prairie chickens or roasted prairie chickens. He wanted prairie chickens from Illinois, right. um, partridges from Missouri. He wanted uh, black bass from the Mississippi River, uh, the, the lake trout from Tahoe, mussels from San Francisco, and, and on and on. And that's, that's one of the things that really sparked my imagination early was, well, now why exactly? And as I started looking into this, I found not only were the, each of these places, um, and not only were each of these places that Twain had visited and places that he knew very Very well, Um, but he 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 really knew what he was talking about in terms of each of these foods. These Mm -hmm. were these were foods that were that did help to that were very strongly identified with each place um, during his lifetime. And remember, this is a time when if 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 you don't eat these foods in their place of origin, you just simply don't eat them at all. That's right. Um, So for one one example of that is when he went to Lake Tahoe when Twain went to Lake Tahoe to try to establish a timber claim. and later wrote about, included lake trout from Tahoe, brook trout from the Sierra Nevada on his menu. Well, we know exactly when that was. That's October of 1861, period. He probably never ate the trout again, maybe in one very brief visit there a year later or something. But but for the most part, once, certainly once he left Lake Tahoe, he was not going to experience that flavor. So... When he lists Lake Tahoe trout, I, I don't think he's just talking about the flavor. He's talking about the way that that flavor evokes an entire experience that he remembered and valued for the That's rest right. of his life. And you see that again and again, whether it's a food from his childhood, whether it's a food from his time as a steamship pilot. Um, it's really kind of a memoir of his American travels as well as a list of favorite foods. And, you know, we we know the connection between food and memory is such a powerful one. That's but, just right what right. I
2: was going to say. Memory, yeah, food memory is indeed it can it can. You know, make you nostalgic. Can make you uh, melancholy. I mean, it can make you happy and feel like a child again.
3: Oh, it's, it's very, very deep. And, and his, uh, but his
2: memories also it really inspired his best work as well. You know, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn are, are, are a compilation in, in disguise of many absolutely. Of his memories. Absolutely, right?
3: absolutely. And in fact, when he wrote this menu, he was right in the middle of what I think of as kind of doing his his memory work. He'd written Thomas Sawyer. He was. He had drafted out um, Huckleberry Finn and was was kind of sitting in a drawer for a little while while he figured <laughs> out the next steps. But And he was about to revisit uh, the Mississippi River um, and was starting to kind of – it was starting to percolate that he was going to go back to this childhood spot. And so I think it's remarkable that, that this was a moment that he sat down and wrote down all of these foods because it, it – it, the identity that we – that we gain from the foods of our childhood can, can be so powerful and so, so deep. And I think that here he's really forging his identity, his identity as an American writer.
2: Yeah. Um, and, well, it, and go on. Yeah.
3: Oh,
4: that's, that's, <laughs> okay.
2: Well, I mean, because when we think of it's interesting, I, and I found this list, I mean, not exhausting. It was, I, I just, every time a new food came up, you know, it was invigorating almost because as you say, it, it, talked about a place it was evocative of a, of a time and a place and when we think about Mark Twain and, and any food he mentioned in his early writings of course everybody said we asked somebody well what were Mark Twain's favorite foods and everyone says oh, possum and raccoon you know because and, <laughs> and corn pone because of course he made big of those in in many of his early works
3: yeah definitely definitely and, and those are foods that he associated very closely with his uncle's farm thats that was a big a big um, formative experience for him was spending summers on his uncle John Quarles' farm and in Florida, Missouri,
2: uh-huh.
3: um, this was when he went back and wrote his autobiography years later. That's some of the most beautiful food writing you're ever going to read. Is him his, his ca- calling back the foods of of his youth from that farm, and it, it's striking. He didn't just remember the food, he also very much remembered how they were made. He, he, he experienced them as things that were taken from the orchard, from the fields, things that were harvested and then prepared very carefully, um, things that people really knew how to work with.
2: That's, and he uh, prescribed that in his list, too, like how absolutely. it should be prepared, right?
3: Absolutely. I mean, it, I don't think we want to get overly romantic and say that all American food was incredibly fresh and local and, you know, wonderful at the time. I mean, certainly there was tired, limp, bad food. There always has been. But the best of American food at the time, as it is now, was fresh and local and carefully prepared. It wasn't something that um, was interchangeable with other foods. It was was things that were um, integrated with the place that they came from. So when, when Twain thought about his uncle's farm he he said things like i know the taste of maple sap and how to gather it and how to boil it down i know the look of an apple sizzling on the hearth i know the way the best way to split a watermelon and the joy of a young boy sitting behind a slice of it and, and on and on like that he, yeah. he 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 knew these foods not just as tastes but as as slices of life
2: well and h- much of his writing and descriptions um could be said to be hyperbolic in many ways but um, but this but his memories i mean were indeed that and just as we think of our first taste of let's say ice cream whoever forgets their first taste of ice cream right it may, not exactly. have, and it may not have been the best ice cream in the world, but the first <laughs> time you tasted it, it, it was so wonderful. And yeah, I, that's And right. that I kind of gathered from many of his of his descriptions. And his he was indeed very homesick for American food when he made this list because some of the things I'm sure if he ate them every, day in day out, they wouldn't have necessarily made his list.
3: Oh, I'm <laughs> sure that's right. I mean, you mentioned raccoon, and I'm sure that's... I've, I ate raccoon while while doing this book, and I, I think that's. Uh, yeah, it's safe to say that that's probably not something you would have sit, wanted to sit down every
2: day. Yeah, I think, well, now, I think, That's what I, I wanted to ask you about that um, and about your travels um, to find out all about these foods. You actually traveled to a lot of these places that he mentioned, and you did exhaustive research in in trying to find the source of these foods. Were you always kind of a, I hate to use the word, it's just, full of disdain today, but the, were you always a foodie? Or was this was this newly born. Yeah, no, I've, I've always
3: I've always loved food. I've always loved food. I mean, it's it's just part of the way I experience place, I guess. I mean, I remember you know taking a road trip right after getting out of high school with a couple of friends. But I, the way I the way I was marking out the trip in advance was kind of like, okay, well, we have to try southern barbecue here, and we have to you know make sure we we try these places in Texas and so on and so forth. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's been a long long term passion for me and that was part of the excitement for me of, of working on the book was having the opportunity of going back to some of these places and you know they've, they've changed a lot mm-hmm. um, but that was that was part of what was interesting to me is that because these foods were so dependent on the places that they've come from often when you're talking about changes to the food or the reason we don't have them anymore you're really talking about changes to different American landscapes.
2: Yeah well um, it, as you say the railroad transport um, blurred the coloring lines. I mean, that's because they could get those. I and mean, I'll let you talk about that later, and um, when we come back. But um, chickens, the prairie chickens, could be transported to the East Coast, let's say, and uh, food could be transported to different places, just like we get fresh fruit from Chile in the middle of winter. Um, but also, people traveled a lot more, and they brought their tastes with them, and so the lines became blurred even yet again.
3: Yeah, that's definitely true. Like One, one great example of that is, you know, Twain said oysters and mussels from San Francisco. And at the, at the time that he was living in San Francisco, the, the local oyster would have been uh, the Oli or Olympia oyster. It's the mm-hmm. native oyster of the West Coast, and these are very, very small. I mean, the, the meat of the oyster is about the size of your thumbnail, where you, you have recipes dating way back, where they'd call for a, an oyster omelet with six eggs a hundred oysters. So you think about you know how many.
2: You, you think <laughs> and about who was proportion. standing there shucking them? <laughs> exactly,
3: exactly. But uh, you know the, the people that were living in San Francisco at the time were virtually all from from somewhere else. I mean, the city had just exploded from a couple hundred, hundred rev, residents to a mm-hmm. hundred thousand during the course of the gold rush, and all these people brought in their tastes for. For oysters, which which they've become accustomed to on the East Coast, for the most part, eastern these large, luscious, brinier, um, sometimes sweeter oysters, as opposed to the Olympia ones, which are small and have a very distinctive uh, coppery taste, which is somewhat of an acquired taste, but it's wonderful if you if if you're uh, if you're inclined that way. So. Anyway, once, when Twain was there, Olympia oysters were all there were. You couldn't carry oysters across the country. But mm-hmm. then he left, and a few years after he left, in 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad comes in. And one of the very first loads brought across uh, Transcontinental was a load of oyster spat. People wanted to start trying to grow eastern oysters in San Francisco Bay as fast as they could. Um, Twain loved the oysters here, but people, so people often stick with their childhood flavors, and they wanted these large Briny uh, oysters that they were used to, whether they were from the Gulf or from uh, the the Atlantic coast.
2: Yeah. Well, there are. Uh, what I want to do is talk. There are several other foods I want to talk about in detail, just like the oysters, um, because so much of what you've written really relates to today's heirloom, heritage, locavore, sustainable movement that um, that we're experiencing. And I want to talk about what we're losing in some of these foods that Twain wrote about, and what we might get back, or what's worth getting back. So stick with us. We'll be back after a short break.
4: Once in the dear dead days beyond recall, when on the world the mist began to fall, out of the dreams that roll in a happy throng Glow to our hearts, love sang an old sweet song And in the dusk where fell the firelight gleam
0: Softly drove
4: it itself into our dreams
1: On March 27th, meet Dr. Temple Grandin, best selling author and world renowned animal behavior expert who has designed humane animal handling facilities all over the world. Join hosts Katie Kiefer and Patrick Martins on the main course at 1 p.m. on Sunday, March 27th, as they get an in depth look at the livestock industry and how it's changing.
2: Uh, I have to thank our producer, Jack Inslee. He never ceases to amaze me <laughs> with the music. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. <laughs> uh, I'm talking with Andrew Beers, the author of Twain's Feast, Searching for America's Lost Foods in the Footsteps of Samuel Clemens. And, of course, it's quite appropriate, since we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of um, Samuel's death, um, that this book should... Well, it came out. When did it come out? The last spring was it? Uh, in July. In July. Okay, in yeah. July. Yeah. Um, and and the foods that Mark Twain most longed for when he was bored uh, with European foods. And actually, I have to say that maybe just as he criticized a European tasting Americans' food, America's food, I think he might have been criticized by Europeans because he wasn't giving everything a fair shake. He was. Probably just a little homesick, more than.
3: Anything. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think I think what his criticisms of European uh, food were more based on the fact that he was eating in hotels and he right. was traveling with his family and not that mobile. But he, he did say that when he could eat with a private family, it was always spectacular, and that he, if he could always do that, then traveling Europe would would be charming.
2: <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the specific foods. Um, now, you one, when you went to do research, let's say uh, for. Some of these foods that are not lost to us, but have kind of lost favor in maybe we've become squeamish. Tell us about Gillette, Arkansas.
4: (laughs) Gillette,
3: Arkansas. It's it's a a small uh, rice farming community in southeastern Arkansas, Um, and ever since the 1940s, since I think 1947. They've been celebrating uh, what they call the Gillette Coon Supper. Um, It started off as a small family gathering where people, that's when men would go out, and men and kids, for the most part, would go out and hunt for raccoon. And they started kind of gathering to to eat the meat once a year in January. And it grew and grew until now. It's kind of the signal event of the town's calendar. There's about 800 people in, in town. And every January, a thousand people sit down in the high school auditorium and eat about 600 pounds of raccoon meat that, <laughs> um, that the local farmers have spent several days preparing. So it's it's this incredible event. I mean, it's lay out you know white tablecloths and the raccoons in big trays with uh, you know biscuits and a lot of other side dishes, and it's, it's really it's really a lot of fun. But it was it wasn't it wasn't an uh, anything like any event I've I've seen before. So oh, I was really imagine. excited to get down and see that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, tell us what what foods do you think are or can you tell us are gone Forever, that we're not going to get back. You mentioned the the Ali oysters. Those are we're having, they have some Olympian oysters coming back, but not quite the same. What well, else? It's not,
3: it, not in the same volume, but you, actually, the, it is still possible to eat Olympia oysters from Washington. And there's people that are working to preserve and, and expand those beds up in Washington. So that's actually one of the one of the great stories is that great. people are kind of you know trying to explore. That it's a, it's a little bit like heirloom seeds, seeds rather. You're looking for a. You know, a food that's got a—you're somewhat familiar with similar uh, foods, but this is a this this one has a distinct and unique flavor that's mm-hmm. uh, really wonderful to bring back and bringing them back even in San Francisco Bay, you can't. Eat them from the bay, but they help to clean up the water and uh, support populations of salmon and Dungeness crabs and other seafoods that we do still enjoy. Um, so, Olympia oysters is one of the great ones um, in terms of restoring. It, it, in terms of not being able to get them back, I don't. I don't think we're going to see diamondback terrapin on on a menu anymore.
2: And that was, I mean, that was really a huge item on, on all American restaurant menus when they That's when exactly restaurants right, first yeah. blossomed. That's Turtles. Right. It, start, it started are, off
3: as the classic Middle Atlantic or Chesapeake dinner was you'd have canvas ducks, roasted canvas ducks, which are also on, on Twain's menu. Mm. And you'd have a bowl of terrapin soup, usually with oysters on the half shell and maybe some, maybe some crab to, to go along with it. So this started off in Baltimore, Philadelphia and spread until it was kind of the distinctive high end meal, like the mo- one of the most elegant meals that you could have partially because it's, it's hard to repair. So you'd needed servants or a, a highly trained kitchen staff to be able to pull it off mm-hmm. um, for the most part. Um, so diamondback terrapins are the you know, kind of the, the classic Turtle of the Chesapeake area. I mean, it's the, Mar- the the Maryland terrapins that is still the nickname of the uh, the local college, the state university. Um, but I, I don't think we're gonna we're gonna see those coming back. But, uh, that's kind of a combination of what you see with raccoon, where social mores have just changed. A lot of people just simply don't want to eat turtle in the way that um, that we used to, and uh, habitat loss. You know, there really right. the, the there's been a lot of loss of wetlands throughout the Chesapeake. There just aren't terrapin in the same kind of volume. And they were overhunted. Um, the amazing thing is that the thing that supposedly saved the population of diamondback terrapin from total extinction was uh, prohibition, because you always, always use sherry in. Whatever and your recipe right. is, you always use sherry and terrapin soup. And so when sherry wasn't readily available um, legally anymore, terrapin soup just vanished off the menu for a decade. And oh, that, that and, during, and that, that, was enough to give them a respite and, and bring some of them back.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: But, yeah, the, the big problem was when terrapin became a national... Delicacy, as opposed to a local food, and I think that's one thing that you see again and again in in this it, with these kinds of uh, wild or lost foods is that if it, if you can maintain it as a local specialty, that's one thing. But once you start shipping it across the country and enjoying it thousands of miles away, it, it, all of a sudden you you kind of lose track of what's actually happening with the local resource.
2: Right. Well, even um, like the the meat you talked you. Um, Gave a, a wonderful description in the beginning, in the introduction, I believe, in uh, the breakfast you made and the beef, the grass-fed beef. Now, even that, you see, we're having a, a kind of a difficult time making sure we get, you know, local beef or grass-fed in the right ways. And that was the only way he got it then, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, a, a beef would have been almost 100 percent grass-fed at the time, um, and that that really gives a distinctive, um, you know, kind of almost herbal. Sometimes gamier or uh, flavor to to meat, and that's what that's what beef was like for a long, long time. And beyond being grass-fed, it was always also it was also always dry aged. Now meat is packed in plastic and aged for a shorter amount of time, which kind of saves on storage space. Mm-hmm. But in his day, you would have to hang it for much, much longer for several weeks, which which uh, allows more of the water, more of the moisture in the meat to evaporate. You end up with a much denser, richer flavor. And so, cooking the steak was really an eye opener for me. It's like, wow, the steaks we have today—it's—it's it's just nothing like uh, what what Twain would have enjoyed for most of his life. So, it's exciting to see a lot of that craft butchery come back. I mean, right. some of this is something that really is um, on the move. Of course, there's there's constant challenges where you know you need you need to be able to support small local slaughterhouses so that people can can do their work and not have to take them to these massive facilities um, where you kind of they're much more impersonal and anonymous, and you end up with the kind of um, You know, nondescript food—food that food that looks the same wherever it comes from.
2: That's right. I mean, if you know those who can support it and and are you know nearby small farms and or big. You know, good farmers markets. It's it really is a treat. Um, and it's yet it's still expensive. And yeah,
3: absolutely. Nuts. Absolutely. I mean, it's not it's not something that you can necessarily do all the time. But uh, but it is there's, there's a lot of benefits to it, not only for the, there's the first of all, there's the immediate taste of it. It's, it really makes a, a meal um, wonderful and distinct. When, when, you can, when you kind of know the source of, of a lot of the food, and you're supporting people that are, that are maintaining these crafts and maintaining these foods and sometimes uh, helping to expand them and pass on the skills to the next generation of producers.
2: That's right. Something that you mentioned that I had never even thought about before um, because I do tap my own sugar maple trees up in, in the country, oh. and that <laughs> is wild foods versus cultivated foods. And maple syrup is one of our last remaining true wild foods i never thought of it as a wild food <laughs>
3: yeah absolutely it's just, it's just the pace of growing the food um the pace of growing a maple tree is just so slow i mean mm-hmm. it takes 40 years
2: for
4: mm-hmm.
3: a for a maple to grow to maturity so it, it sometimes they're planted but for the most part um you know plantations are they're wild trees and people have thinned out the areas around them and tended the sugar bush that way right. but it's it's not the same thing as, as as planting all these things in rows when i went out and visited um bill and amy Pruel at rivers Edge sugar house in in connecticut um bill's a retired police officer and he and his wife decided that this is what they want to do is, is tap trees and make make sugar i mean they, they're they're basically tapping the trees in their neighbors backyards they <laughs> do it at a local scout camp and they give the scout some syrup as a thank you but it's, it, it there's all these trees that are just around in ashford connecticut and they, they're just making use of them. They're, they're basically foraging. That's great. But, it's, yeah. but it's, uh, it's, it's definitely not something they're doing in, in that formal way. It's just it, it's more of a, a, a series of relationships with the people that they're tapping, um, whose trees they're tapping, which is, you know, adds kind of wonderfully personal dimension to it anyway.
2: Yeah, it is. Well, one thing that, um, that Sammy Clemens mentioned that I... I Kind of had a big question mark next to, him, and that was he longed for a good cup of American coffee. Well that now that just <laughs> that kind <clears throat> of blew me away because you know we think of going to Europe and drinking all this wonderful coffee in Europe, and and yet, and I think that was was it Germany in particular that he was.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. Ger- reacting to him. Germany. He described making a German cup of coffee as you rub one. One coffee bean against one chicory bean, and you put the chicory bean in a gallon of water, and you boil it for an hour until it's until the flavor is appropriately diminished and until the water
2: and looks brown, right?
3: Exactly, right. And then he talked about uh, and, and one of his big complaints on that is he loved rich raw cream. Mm-hmm. Really thick cream. He always talked about the layer of cream on top of a a cup of good coffee. So mm-hmm. it was almost like a, almost a confectionery that he was describing. And, and that, that really was, and is that and that
2: really is complaints. American. That that's a that's a very American thing indeed. Um,
3: Absolutely. And that was one of his big complaints is he talked about um, uh, you know in, in European hotels getting baptized cream, which he, he called it baptized because there was so much water added to it. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, yeah. Having, I mean, not in Europe, you do not find uh, anyone drinking coffee with cream. Actually, right. cream, and that's and that is a a special treat to sip it underneath that layer of fat. Just, and,
3: and when and when he would. And in his day, it always would have been raw cream, which, again, is l- like dry-aged uh, beef, something you don't see that often. You definitely have to seek it out now. Right. Um, you know, non-pasteurized cream, it's just, it's just very different. I mean, pasteurized cream, there's a lot of reasons to do it, but it does change the flavor. You're releasing um, a hydrogen sulfide gas, which gives it the, the flavor that we actually associate with milk to the point that sometimes people miss it if it's not there. <laughs> um, but, it, but it is a different food when you're drinking fresh, raw cream.
2: Yeah, uh, something that we have to sort of fight to get back. Actually, yeah, that's right. Legal well, it's, a,
3: it's illegal in about half the states now. Right. Um, so I was I was lucky to be able to find it locally.
2: Yeah. Well, you know what I what I liked is you do give some recipes for some of these lost foods or or foods that we've forgotten about, and I like how you researched and went back to some of the earliest cookbooks, um, Mary Randolph's Virginia Housewife, uh, Susanna Carter's Frugal Housewife, eighteen oh three. That that I mean, next to Amelia Simmons's book, it was one of the oldest. Cookbooks, as well as um, Eliza Leslie's um, Ladies' Book, Ladies' Receipt Book, um, from 1847. I mean, these were the foods they; th- these were the books that were written at the time. The foods they were cooking and eating at the time. So it really added a nice dimension, I have to say, to to the research that you.
3: Thanks. So. Well, it's it, it's amazing looking back at these these cookbooks. A lot of times you see the same standards that Twain is. Um, that Twain is excited about. I mean, if you go back to Amelia Simmons, which you mentioned, which is the first American cookbook, Mm -hmm. there's an awful lot of descriptions in there about where to take the best salmon. I mean, she's talking about a kind of salmon trout, and she's specific enough where she says, it's better if you take it from the base of a waterfall, it's fresher meat, and and so on and so forth. And so you get almost the landscape descriptions um, scattered throughout, the cookbooks that you just wouldn't see in a in a cookbook anymore. I mean, now it's more how to select it at market, and there's a, there's a fair amount of that then too. But I think there's more of a, a more of an understanding of the places that the food comes from, mm-hmm. um, the the best kind of water for taking eels, the best kind of fields for for um, an earth for 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 growing turnips and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. I th- he, I think Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens <laughs> would. would um, would have liked living right now to see where we're going in the food world because he really, as you stated, he really liked fresh food eaten at its peak. And
3: yeah, definitely, definitely. I think I think he'd be appalled by a lot of the uh, the fast food that's um, kind of uh, taken over a lot of a lot of our. Oh no,
2: and, absolutely. And subsidized, but but I, I I'm talking about the movements. About the return. Yeah,
3: definitely. No, yeah. I think I think I think there's no question about that. I mean, the, the thing is that the thing is that really stands out about his foods is that he liked place. He liked foods that were unique to the places they came from, that helped to define the places they came from, and really couldn't be eaten anywhere else. And this, you see this in hes talking about architecture and art and music. It's always true for him. He liked things that were unique and unusual, and that's a big part of today's food movement, is that you're bringing back these these foods that have historical resonance in the places they came from, and that are dependent on the specific qualities of the air and water and soil that they're that they're grown. Um, right. I think he'd be very
2: excited about that. Yeah. Well, I hope that we as a, a country can can hold on to some of those things that make us special and that future generations can enjoy it. And Andrew, I thank you first of all, for writing this book. It was, it was a very enjoyable book and I think an eye opener to a lot of people about what was going on uh, that many years ago. And I want to remind our listeners that it's Andrew Beer's book, Twain's Feast, searching for America's lost foods in the footsteps of Samuel Clemens. And again, thank you, Andrew. This has been A Taste of the Past. And I'm Linda Palaccio on Heritage Radio Network.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from Beer Sessions Radio. Beyond the human and environmental casualties of the triple threat disaster in Japan, there will likely also be losses to our collective food culture, from miso and sake makers to outstanding fisheries. With help from the New York State Brewers Association, the Good Beer Seal, Beer Sessions Radio, and Craft Breweries alike, Jimmy Carboni is hoping to raise funds that will go directly to Hitachino, an excellent Japanese brewery, through a benefit at Brooklyn Brewery next Monday, March 28th from 7 to 10 p.m. In addition to beer, there'll be food from the Meat Hook, Jimmy's Number 43, Waterfront Ale House, and a few local Japanese restaurants. All money raised will go to Kyuchi Brewery and Hitachino Beers, which they will distribute via humanitarian aid locally. To date, the brewery, which lost 500 bottles in the earthquake and suffered some damage to its physical plant, is filtering and bottling water for its community and providing them with food. You can read a letter about the quake's aftermath to Jimmy from Toshiyuki Kyuchi, the brewery owner, on his site. And you can buy tickets to the benefit on brownpapertickets.com backslash event backslash 166978. That's brownpapertickets.com slash event slash 166978. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent to kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Omofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's Brooks Headley of Del Posto and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club Thomas Wah of Death & Company Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard Damon Bolte of Prime Meats and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink Tickets are very limited and $250 per person to purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-V-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Frenou Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat Lafrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant.